0: Last week, we began looking at the book of Philippians. Now, why, uh, why are we choosing this book in particular? It's a letter that's written by the apostle, by Apostle Paul, to the church that he started about 10 years prior to this letter, writing of this letter. A church he loved deeply, a church that was a faithful supporter of his ministry, but now that he feels separated from, he's under house arrest, probably in Rome. And he is writing a letter full of emotion, full of joy, full of longing to be with them. Something we identified during this time, wanting to be with people and not able to be with them face to face. And the theme of this letter is joy, which seems quite a relevant topic for us to consider during this pandemic. If Paul could rejoice in prison, perhaps we too can learn to rejoice in this crisis. So that's why the book of Philippians. Last Sunday we looked at Paul's greeting And now we will focus on the prayer, the kind of the introductory prayer that follows, prayer that hits in a lot of the themes to be developed later in the book. So before we do that, let's affirm together our confidence in God's Word. Before I read the passage, we'll affirm our confidence in God's Word by reciting together what, as we always do on on Sundays, let's say it together. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let me read Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. If you want to follow along, I will be using the ESV, English Standard Version. is what we use here at church, but of course you can follow along in any translation that you like. Lots of good translations out there. So let me read Philippians 1, verses 3 and following. This is Paul speaking. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine for you, I'll make in my, for you all, make in my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's Word, and I pray that God would give us ears to hear and and obedience, joyful obedience, to do what God tells us to do in this text. If I were to summarize this passage in one sentence... It would be the following that Paul rejoices in prayer. He rejoices in God's good work, in and through the Philippian believers. Paul is rejoicing what God has already done in them and what He is yet to do in this church at Philippi. Now, Paul's sentiment is similar to what we find in Third John chapter, uh, verse four. 3 John verse four, where the Apostle John says. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This is also Paul's joy, to see that God is working in the Philippian church and that he will continue to work until the day of Christ. I'd like to divide our text into two parts. So two points, which by now you already know that the, the number of points has nothing to do with the length Of the sermon. So we have two points, two parts today. First, let's look at God's work from the first day. God's work from the first day. And this is verses three through eight. Paul is sort of looking back into the past of the Philippian church and focusing on the present relationship that they have with him. And then let's consider God's work until the day of Christ. God's work until the day of Christ. Paul is looking into the future and praying for them to continue to make progress until Christ returns. So God's work from the first day verses 3 and 8 through 3 through 8 and then God's work until the day of Christ verses 9 through 11. When Paul thinks about the church in Philippi, his heart seems to just naturally overflow with thanksgiving and joy. Why? Why is it that he feels so overwhelmed emotionally about his relationship with the Philippian believers? He tells us that he is grateful and joyful because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, in verse 5. He is overjoyed because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, this word partnership is a little tricky for us Some of your translations will probably have fellowship instead of partnership. Some of your translations may have sharing or participation. Those are all good words to translate this term. Uh, This word is often used to describe a marriage relationship, the intimate connection and sharing of life that a husband and wife experience together. Or a financial partnership, a, a business contract, a partnership that has common business interests, or even sharing something in common, sharing property in common, or sharing something else, experience in common. Now, what does Paul mean by the partnership of the gospel? How does the gospel fit into this relationship that he has with the Philippian church? Why, why does it make him so happy and joyful and thankful? that he has this special relationship, the special partnership of the gospel with the Philippian church? Well, I think he means at least two things, maybe more, but at least two things as far as what this partnership in the gospel, partnership of the gospel means. Number one, Paul is referring to the common experience of God's grace. Partnership of the gospel means a common experience of God's grace. In verse 7, Paul calls the Philippians partakers. It's the same word as partnership or sharing or participation or fellowship in verse 5. He calls the Philippians partakers with him of grace in verse 7. Partakers with him of grace. Paul sees all Christians as as co-sharers of God's grace. We've all had the same experience of God's grace coming into our lives and transforming us. When Paul came to Philippi, we looked at it last week, but you can certainly read about this in Acts 16. When Paul came to Philippi and preached the gospel of God's grace there, Lydia and then the jailer and his family and many others responded by faith and were changed by God's grace. They had the same experience that Paul had when Christ encountered him on the road to Damascus as described in Acts 9. So from the first day until now, Paul means from your conversion, from your first encounter with God's grace until now, we have been partners, co-sharers. We have experienced the same grace from God. As Paul was transformed by God's grace, so the Philippians were transformed by the same grace And so they have this experience in common. When he preached the same Jesus that he encountered on the road to Damascus, when he preached that same Jesus in Philippi, a new community of people transformed by grace was started. And thus the partnership of the gospel began. The partnership based in the common experience of grace. Now, isn't that a good definition of a Christian, a person transformed by God's grace? Isn't that what it means to be a Christian, to be transformed by God's grace, to experience God's grace? Grace means that God loves us, even though we have rejected his love. Grace means that God sent Jesus to give his life for us on the cross, Grace means that God offers forgiveness to us as a gift. Grace means that God offers a new life through the resurrection of Jesus. Grace means that God sent his Holy Spirit to be in us, to move among us, and to change us into new people. Have you been transformed by God's grace? Has that been your experience that, like Paul on the road to Damascus, or like Lydia by the riverside, or like the Philippian jailer in prison, God came into your life, and he extended his grace, his love, his mercy to you, his forgiveness, and that utterly changed you. So Paul looks back on that first day of the Philippian church and rejoices that God has been at work from the first day until now. And if today you encounter Christ, this could be your first day, your first day of grace, where you are beginning to be transformed by God. And God will continue to work from this day and until He returns and into eternity, He will continue to work in your life. And you will have the same partnership of the gospel with everybody else that has been transformed by the same grace that has encountered the same Jesus. That's what Paul means, in part, by his special relationship with the Philippians. They, they've all encountered this transforming grace of God. When we think about Christian relationships, they're different. You know, think about any relationship, uh, it's usually a person to person. I have a friendship with somebody, I know them, they know me. We have shared certain things together. We have had conversations. We've known each other. But it's them and it's me. But in the Christian sense, in the church, in the partnership of the gospel, that is not how it works. All our relationships are triangular. There's me, there's someone else, and there's Christ. All our relationships are like that in the church. I am not just relating to somebody one-to-one. Just face-to-face with that person. No, there's always the face of Christ. There's always Christ that is part of that relationship. It is almost like, it's not the same, but it's almost like when siblings relate to each other. Yes, they relate to each other on their own terms, as person-to-person, but they always have their parents in common. They always have the same upbringing in common. They share so much because of their relationships, their individual relationships, to their parents. That's like it, like that is in the church. We as Christians are not just relating to one another horizontally, but we are also triangulating. There's God involved here. And my relationship with any Christian is not just a relationship of one person to another person. But it's a relationship of one person to another person and both people relating to Christ at the same time. Having the same experience of grace as co-sharers of that grace because we both go to Christ and we both depend on him and we both have been transformed by him and now through that experience, from that experience, we relate to each other. Let me read a, a quote from Anne Lamott who describes grace. I've used this quote before and I like it quite a bit because It gives us the description of grace, what it is, but it also gives us the effects of grace on a community of people. So listen to what Anne Lamott says. She says, Grace is unearned love, the love that goes before, that greets us on the way. It's the help you receive when you have no bright ideas left, when you are empty and desperate and have discovered that your best thinking and most charming charm have failed you. Grace is the light or electricity or juice or breeze that takes you from that isolated place and puts you with others who are as startled and embarrassed and eventually grateful as you are to be there. This is what the church is, a group of people startled by grace, somewhat embarrassed that God chose us, and ultimately grateful to be there with others who have experienced the same grace. That's church. That's Christian fellowship. That's Christian partnership. That's Christian relationships. We've all been pulled out. We've all been freed. We've all been found by God and favored by Him, unimaginably favored by Him, not based on what we have done. Quite opposite from that, in spite of what we do. And God pulls us out, and then he just throws us in together into the church. And here we are, every person transformed by grace, every person a co-sharer of grace with others. Yes, a little embarrassed that we're here, still trying to figure out how it is that God got me, that he found me, that he changed me, that he was so gracious to me that I belong here in this company of people in this community first john 3 verse 1 i think describes it really well first john 3 verse 1 see what kind what kind of love the father has given to us some of your translations would say behold behold the manner of love there's there's wonder here surprise See the kind of love that God has for us. See the kind of grace that God has for us in Christ. That we should be called children of God. That he would take us into his family. And then John finishes this verse by saying, and so we are. Look, see the kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. There's there's an acceptance of grace in this verse. We marvel at what God has done, but then we say, and here we are. Here we are. And so we are loved by God, undeserved. And so that common experience of wonder at God's grace, transformation by His grace, encounter with Christ, relationship with Him, that's what binds us together. That's why Paul is so affectionate towards the Philippian church is because he is affectionate towards Christ. And with the affection of Jesus Christ himself, he is loving this church. He is loving the people because they have a common experience of Christ. Now that's, I think, one thing that he means by the partnership of the gospel. The second thing he means is the common commitment to the proclamation of the gospel. Not just the common experience of the gospel, but the common commitment to the proclamation of the gospel. The Philippian congregation was one of Paul's most faithful supporters. They kept up with him in all his travels and troubles and provided for his ministry financially In fact, this letter, the letter to the Philippians, is a response to the gift that the Philippian church sent with with one of their people, Epaphroditus, went and brought the gift to Paul, who was in prison, to sustain him. And so Paul writes a thank you letter that we know is the letter to the Philippians. You can think of it as a missionary update, missionary support letter in many ways. Paul is writing that to thank them for their gift, for their partnership of the gospel, their commitment to the proclamation of the gospel. Now, many people turned away from Paul when he was in prison. This was a shameful thing. How can it be that a, a successful person would be accused of something, would be put in prison, and yet the Philippian church knew that even in prison, maybe especially in prison, Paul will continue to proclaim the gospel, and Paul does. Every time he's chained to a Roman guard, he gets a chance to share the gospel. Later we'll, we'll read about Paul's influence in Caesar's household because he had appealed to Caesar. He's, he's brought to Rome. The reason he's in Rome is to appear before Caesar. and So he has unique access to the palace, to the guards, to the staff there, maybe even to some of the royal family. He gets a chance to proclaim the gospel even there. The Philippians understand that. They know this is an opportunity, and so they continue their support of Paul's ministry even when he is in prison, and so Paul thanks them for that and rejoices that they are connected by this common cause, by this common purpose of extending God's kingdom, proclaiming Christ crucified and risen to more and more people, even in Rome, even in the imperial palace. That common cause made their already strong relationship even stronger. Now, as a pastor, <clears throat> I've had the privilege of conducting several funerals at Jefferson Barracks. And I have shared with you before how moving a military funeral is. And I'm sure many of you have experienced that yourself. I think part of that, part of the reason why it's so moving and, and it's, it's emotional it is of the because of the bond that is so obvious among all those who served in the military and especially during wartime there 's just an evident connection there between all the people, different families, and people that don 't even know each other really, but they 're connected to one another by this common experience, yes, but the common purpose, the common cause it 's the pursuit of that common purpose and the sacrifices that are required that unite very different people. I think that's why those funerals are, are, are particularly moving. You see there's something greater. There's a greater community that is grieving. There's a greater community that is engaged. The same is true of the church. We are all very different, but we're united in the partnership of the gospel. Our fellowship should never be superficial. When we use the term fellowship, which comes from passages like our text in Philippians, the fellowship of believers, the partnership of believers, the communion of believers, we tend to minimize it, but, but it's, a, it's a deep thing. We are connected to one another, certainly through the common experience of Christ, but also through the common pursuit of Christ's goals. We work together, for the common goal of extending and expanding God's kingdom. It's a fellowship that is based in a, in a greater purpose than just attending church or helping each other. We together are bound by this goal of proclaiming the gospel. And because of that, because of all the experiences that Paul has had in the, with the Philippians, their unwavering support of him, their gifts to him, their prayers for him, his prayers for them, his responsibilities to them as he preached the gospel there at first from the first day and until now, that relationship, that relationship rooted in the experience of grace and and the experience of the pursuit of the common goal of the gospel, that makes him overflow with emotion. And so verses 7 and 8, Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This relationship is special, and I think any Christian relationship that is Actually, practically based in our experience of grace together and our pursuit of the common goal of proclamation of the gospel, of making disciples together, will overflow in this kind of affection. He genuinely loves them. He yearns to be with them. He wants to be with them, misses them. And I resonate with Paul's emotions. These are some of the same emotions that I feel towards you. It is hard for me not to be with you. It is hard to be in a largely empty sanctuary and not see your faces and not hear your voices. I too with Paul can say that I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus because our relationship is not just my relationship with you but it's my relationship with you and Christ. Seeing you transformed by his grace, seeing you grow in his grace and change, seeing you make sacrifices for him and for each other, seeing seeing you be changed by the Holy Spirit and repenting and growing and rejoicing in Christ, that is a moving experience. And I think most pastors, if not all pastors, will will tell you that you get to know a church. You come to serve at a church. I've been here almost five years now. And it's a brand new group of people. And in a matter of weeks and months and certainly years, as the pastor gets to know, as I got to know you, there is genuine affection. There is genuine love that is not based on our common interests and hobbies. It's not based on that. It's based in our common experience of grace and our common pursuit of God's own purposes for us and for others. So I love you, and my love is is genuine. It's a a God-given affection that I feel because of what God has done in you and in me. Now that is the partnership of the gospel that Paul bases his relationship with Philippians on, and he is reflecting on the work that God has done from the first day, the day of conversion, the day of the beginning of the church in, in Philippi, up until now, including their very affectionate relationship in the present. But now, as he actually prays, this was sort of the prelude to the actual actual prayer. As he actually prays, he looks uh, more towards the future, so the more the present and the future, and he is praying for the progress that began in the first day and has been happening in Philippi to continue until the day of Christ. So let's read what he's actually praying for, verses 9, 10, and 11. He says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is praying for God's work that began to continue And actually to to increase and to remain there until Jesus returns. He's anticipating the return of Christ, the day when the work of the gospel will actually be complete. He's looking forward to the day when he and the Philippians will appear before their Lord. Now, you read these three verses. This is Paul's prayer for the Philippians. And we have to compare this prayer with our prayers, right? We have, to, we have to apply this and say, is this how I am praying for other people? This is how I'm praying for my children, my, my spouse, my, my parents, my neighbors, my people at church, fellow, fellow Christians around me. Is this, this how I'm praying? Is there that same kind of depth, the same kind of desire that Paul has in his prayer? Now we've done during our discipleship training, we, we've looked at Paul's prayers and we've examined what he actually prays for. And Paul prayed a lot, regularly, frequently praying for people in his life, various churches, various co-workers, and he's praying for them. And I think that's a, that's a worthwhile study to examine his prayers and see what is he actually praying for and how do our prayers correlate to his prayers. So many of our prayers are consumed with present troubles. And we are right to bring to our Lord all sorts of cares, big and small, that's appropriate. He wants to hear whatever is going on in our lives. He cares about every little thing that's happening in your life. But the question is, are we also praying in light of the return of Christ, in preparation for the return of Christ. Now Paul is actually praying for the church in Philippi to be prepared for Christ's return. He's praying for God's ongoing work in the Philippians until the day of Christ. He he has the day of Christ in his sights when he is praying. He's praying that they would keep making progress until that day. Are we praying like that for ourselves and each other? In light of our future salvation, yes, we are to thank God for what he's done. The sacrifice of Christ, the gift of faith, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Yes, let's thank him for all those things every day. But let's also pray that we will continue to move on the trajectory towards a fuller, greater salvation that is yet to come. You know, in the New Testament, there there are different tenses of salvation. We've talked about it several weeks ago. In one of the sermons, we've talked about different senses of salvation, that there is the past, there is the present. We are being saved and changed now, but there's also the future. When Christ returns, we'll be fully saved. So are we praying and living in light of that? Let's break down the specifics of the progress Paul is praying for here. He's praying, first of all, that their love may abound more and more. That's really, that really is the center of, of his prayer, that their love may abound more and more. It's not surprising that love is central to Paul's prayer because love is central to the Christian life. God is love, and if we have experienced His love or grace, we begin to love God and others. Now, the assumption here is, is really interesting that love can grow, that love can increase, love can abound more and more. Paul is praying that the Philippians' love to God, to each other, will actually increase and become greater. Love is unlike any other virtue. Let me quote from Robert Barron, I think he's a Catholic thinker, He reflects on the difference of love from other virtues. Now listen to him. Unlike the other virtues, both natural and theological, love has no limit. Justice, limitlessly expressed, excludes all mercy. Too much temperance becomes a fussy Puritanism. Exaggerated courage is rashness. Unlimited faith is credulity. Infinite hope devolves into presumption. But there can never be too much love. There's never a time when love is inappropriate. For love is what God is, and love constitutes the very life of heaven. Mind you, in heaven there's no need for faith, and hope fades away. But in that supremely holy place, love remains in all of its infinite intensity and radicality. What he's saying is incredibly insightful. Other virtues reach their limit. They have to be balanced with other things. But love, true love, real love, the love the way that God loves, it can just increase more and more, abound more and more. There's no limits There's no boundaries of that. There's never a time when it's inappropriate to love. We always love. Love in the appropriate way, but we always love. And in eternity, we will continue to love and increase in our love for God and others. So Paul is praying for that love to abound more and more, but how? How does love abound more and more? Through knowledge and discernment. Through knowledge and all discernment. Loving God is rooted in knowing God. Loving others is rooted in knowing others. If someone declares that they love God, but they do not read their Bible, or they don't pray in order to know God better, how much do they really love Him? If someone declares that they love God's people, but they're not involved in a very specific local gathering of God's people, the church, how much do they really love them? It's easy to say in the abstract, I love God, or I love people. But it's very different when we know God and we love him, when we know people and we love them. That's practical. That's real. One of the traits of love is relational curiosity. We continue to want to learn about the object of our love. So with God, that's plays out right now in our lives through reading his book, because it's his book to us to reveal himself. And so if I love him, I want to know him more. I want my love to abound more and more towards him. And so I spend time with his book. I'm listening to his voice. I go to him in prayer, not just to tell him my needs, to, for him to know me, but for me to know him. I listen in prayer. I talk with him. Every Christian that loves God, spends time with him to know him. And if I say I love people, I spend time with them. I have to. How can I claim that I love somebody whom I don't really know? And so for the church to be filled with love, it has to be filled with relationships. It has to be filled with time spent together. Now that's knowledge. And our love abounds more and more through knowledge, but also through discernment. Discernment has to do with moral insight. If knowledge is more relational, I'm learning things about others. Discernment has to do with moral choices. Paul is praying for the Philippians' love to increase through moral decisions, or we can say obedience to to God's will. Jesus said in a familiar verse to most of us in John 14 verse 15, And also in many other places, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So to love God means to obey him, means to make moral choices, to consider something wrong and something right, to consider something worth doing and something not worth doing. And so all discernment comes from God. And it actually makes us love him more. Does your life, your everyday decisions, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, what kind of relationships you invest in, does your life show your love for God and others through knowledge and all discernment? But Paul is not simply concerned with the right choices. He's praying for the Philippians to make the best choices. So that you may approve what is excellent. So that you may approve what is excellent. Not approve what is acceptable. Not hit the minimum requirement. Not the pretty good, but the excellent. Now we're getting into the category of wisdom. So it's knowledge, relational knowledge, obedience, discernment, and now wisdom. Legalism is making sure you do the right things and avoid the wrong things. But the Christian life, life in the Spirit, is doing the best things, choosing between the good and the better. Are you living like that? Praying that the Holy Spirit would give you all discernment and would give you not just discernment between good and and, and evil, but between good and better and best so as you live your life, you rely on the wisdom of God to guide your decisions and to do things that are even better than things you would normally do. And then finally, the last kind of explanation of how this love can grow and how we can prepare for the day of Christ uh, talks about being presented pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So this increasing love undergirded by knowledge, obedience, and wisdom, is what actually shapes us into people who are going to be presented as pure and blameless for the day of Christ. I do think Paul is praying for practical holiness here. These are people transformed by grace, not just people who have accepted certain ideas, but they've been transformed by that grace And so the fruit of righteousness is the evidence of that transformation. We have borne fruit in our lives that shows that we have been transformed by grace. These are the results of our participation in God's own life. And Paul envisions that as we are presented before Christ on that last day when he returns, that our fruit will be examined. Our fruit will be perhaps marveled at. Our fruit would be acknowledged as God's work in us. Now, my grandfather grew up in the city and lived all his life in a city apartment. But in his retirement years, um, he and my grandma moved to the country and and learned how to garden. I still remember uh, visiting with them in the village, and my grandpa's utter joy at seeing the plants he planted and nurtured and cultivated and protected, seeing them bear fruit. He would come into the house holding a giant strawberry and say, look at that, just in complete amazement that something that he did, something he planted as a seed, now bore fruit like that, just this amazing strawberry. Look how big it is, he would say, just kind of, he was the kind of gregarious person that would just come into the room and just interrupt everybody because he had something important to share. And so he would share this amazement at the harvest that he saw in his garden. And this wouldn't go away. This would be a daily thing. He would discover things in the garden that would amaze him, would surprise him, would bring him joy. Now, it's, it's especially puzzling for me because he had a An allergy to strawberries. He actually wouldn't eat strawberries, but that whole process of of doing something and seeing it bear fruit brought him enough joy even without having tasted that strawberry. Simply excited to see the fruit of his work. I think Paul has something similar in mind here. He envisions the Philippian believers appearing before Christ on that day, on that last day, bearing the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of practical holiness in their lives. And Christ will say, look at them. Look at how much love has abounded in their lives. Look at their knowledge. Look at their obedience to my commands. Look at their wisdom, how they were able to discern good from better and best. Because you see, even our love and our knowledge and our obedience and our wisdom— are not ultimately our accomplishments. Not really. It's the work of the gardener. And as Paul says, it is the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God does it, and He receives glory from it on that last day. Now let me finish by quoting from verse 6. And if you're reading through the book of Philippians, you will encounter many verses that you hear quoted, many verses that Christians have memorized and and have casually thrown around. This is a book full of these these brief sayings that we all know. One of them is found in verse 6. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, if He began His good work in you, you can be sure that He will finish it, that He will bear fruit in your life. And on that day, you will stand before Him rejoicing that He loves you, that He knows you, that He has changed you all by grace. C.S. Lewis describes that day in his great sermon, The Weight of Glory. In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. It is written that we shall stand before him shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, But delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or as a father in a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. But so it is. It does seem incredible that Christ will welcome us on that last day. But so it is. He will. He will hold on to us. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will hold us fast. He will continue to be faithful even when we are unfaithful. When we fail, He will hold us. He will pick us up. He will restore us. And so on that last day, we'll appear before Him, bearing the fruit of righteousness, His own Uh, his own work in our lives, his work to the glory and praise of God.